Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, which is part three of a special series on careers in L&D, I'm speaking with Paul Smith, Head of Learning and Organisational Development at Retail Prodigy Group, about what it means to become a learning leader today. But before we do, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us. And thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Paul, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. Very excited. Uh, now, Paul, you are Head of Learning and Organisational Development at Retail Prodigy Group. Could you start off by describing your role and remit at RPG, please? Yeah, sure. So it's uh, probably a little bit fancier than it than it actually is okay. uh, in terms of job title. Uh, so my my role, I've only been here at uh, Retail Prodigy Group since December last year, mm. uh, and I effectively lined directly into the the CEO. Um, and we're all about elevating the business to become more of a learning organisation. So it's in some ways a bit of a a startup in that in that vibe in terms of the function that I that I look after. Mm. Uh, so taking the business really on a journey around what what learning could be, um, mm. and assessing kind of what learning is already occurring with within the business. So it's relatively broad, um, and we're kind of building the foundations every day. So it's uh, we get to create the role from the ground up, which is actually really exciting. And as I say, the CEO who I line into, Steve, he's. Uh, incredibly passionate about this particular area, uh, learning and development um, in the fullest sense of what those words are. Um, but, but, but as a business, it's, it's interesting because we are not just a, a retailer on our own. We, we actually are the operating partners for some of the world's major brands. So in, in the Australia, New Zealand landscape, that's um, for um, some Samsung stores and also Nike. Uh, two of our key partners, uh, amongst others as well. So it's a really interesting business to be part of. And you mentioned there that uh, that you report into the CEO um, and you're aligned on wanting to create a learning organisation. Um, how does that kind of manifest? Because you you mentioned you know Steve there, uh, he's unlikely to have said to you, "Hey Paul, could you create a learning organisation?" But it's going to manifest in other ways. What are his expectations? Going back to my initial original question about what's your remit? What's kind of the expectation on you um, that is going to uh, enable and, and and make RPG successful? Steve is probably the best learning and development leader that isn't a learning and development leader and what i mean by that is (laughs) he really gets the essence of kind of what i see is the future of learning in a business it is all about and it's that kind of solving of real problems and you know getting down to the the real need and and how do we partner in so Mm. whilst it might be surprising to say actually steve's vision was he wants to create a learning organization and i was then tasked to kind of help to bring that alive and, yeah. I, and I think to answer the question in a slightly different way, it makes a massive difference when you have someone who gets it. He might not understand the technical elements of how we go about it, but that's why he employs, I guess, specialists to be able to support him with helping to bring that to life. Mm. Uh, but it makes a big difference uh, to 
what we can achieve and, and how we, and how we go about it. I, you know, the, mm. the convincing part is, is less of what I, I have to do. I have to convince more around the stakeholders that are there and yeah. that they're more so than him, which is actually a refreshing change. Mm. And uh, you, I, you've, you've already addressed there uh, something I, I wanted to call out because too often in learning and development circles, we hear that the, the rationale for not actually modernizing the L&D function is that we don't have the culture or we don't have the support of, uh, of senior folks. And I think that's important what you said there, that, that, that your CEO um, and, and yourself may be aligned and he's a, he's a strong L&D advocate but it's not all plain sailing and the you know we, we you know i'm going to move on in a moment the next question around exploring what it what it means to be an lnd leader but but simply implementing stuff when you have the the culture already there and you have all the buy-in as you expect isn't actually leadership it's just implementation you know the leadership is uh, actually occurs when you face resistance and i think that that this is something that uh, we seriously need to talk about within this profession because too too quickly we give up and we don't choose to lead in our organisations because we want certain hurdles to, to, to be eliminated. Like we need a learning culture. We need everyone else to jump on. We need line managers to, you know, it's, it's almost as if the, the sea needs to part <laughs> perfectly <laughs> and biblically so that we can then do the stuff that's actually required. But as I said, I don't believe that's leadership. I believe that's just doing an easy job in mythical circumstances. <laughs> Would you agree? <laughs> I, 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 I totally align with that. Because although um, I mentioned that Steve is very aligned to it, the business or readiness for the business to understand what next level L&D looks like isn't there. So the leadership yeah. really is around my peer group, mm. around my direct reports, my team, and then the other functions that exist within the business. So, mm. you know, Steve can't lead that on his own. And that's, you know, for me to take up that mantle and say, right, this is your vision. How do I bring that that bit to life? Mm. And I, I kind of have this view that everyone's a bit of an L&D expert. It's a bit like parenting. Everyone has something to say yeah. about it because everyone's experienced it in some degree around whether you've received training or we're all institutionalized into the fact that, that, that Trading is just something is tangible, it's easy, we can pick it up or we can, we can go out and do it. When, when actually there are, obviously, as we know, and having listened to many of these podcasts, <laughs> there, are, there are many different ways of, of doing it and adding real value to real people at the point at which they need it, Yeah, which aren't necessarily on a scoreboard straight away. So people go, well, therefore, it's not tangible. Um, or what does that mean for me? And, and my job, I see, is to take Steve's words, fluff it out make it a bit of a bigger story how do we then lean into those people's individual perspectives so where do they sit on the learning development readiness scale tailor that story to their need and then bring them on the journey you know it's at everyone's at, at different stages and i think that's the difference when you in, in a leadership position is you get to size up and understand where people are at so you get to know how you need to position the 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 solution and i don't mean a learning development solution but i mean moving the business forward in a in a more of a a forward progressive learning and development way understanding where they're at to help them come on that journey and that's really not easy it doesn't matter how well aligned you are with the ceo someone's got their idea they've got their idea and convincing them otherwise could be somewhat of a challenge 
Yeah, look, you, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's a really, really important distinction. You're not you're not developing learning and development solutions. You're developing business solutions in order to, to, to move the business forward. And I found that in my roles as head of a director at, uh, at Disney, when you're exposed at a certain level to different types of conversations, even those senior stakeholders who are asking you for training courses, it's a trick question because they're not asking for training courses. They actually need results. And so if you're going to bow and then and tell them, yeah, I'll run that training course for you. A lot of the time, what, what you're saying is, I'll take that order, but I can't actually help you with the outcomes. And I think that's a, it's a harsh lesson. But I'd love to do a bit of a compare and contrast. You know, this uh, uh, episode is third in a series that we're running on L&D careers. And so I'd love to, to explore with you what it means to be a head of L&D and what that step up from manager is in terms of the expectations that, uh, that um, for want of a better word, imposed upon you, um, what the, the difference of relationships are, and in terms of, of deliverables. Because although you mentioned there that, uh, that, that you've only been at RPG for a while, your previous role was head of as well. So you kind of, you know, you, you have um, that, that experience, uh, but perhaps not too far that you don't remember what it was like <laughs> to be a manager. So what, what does that step up look like? I, I kind of use it overusing the word strategy. I think it gets overused a lot. But there's a big difference between being strategic, tactical, and delivering on an, and, and executing something. And I think that the, the head of role is the one that's able to have that, that kind of commercial acumen, the commercial nouse, is able to foster those relationships effectively at the, at the, the highest level of an organization and is then able to distill those things into a meaningful roadmap or plan, which is more than just the three weeks or three months in front of you in order to elevate where the business needs to be by wrapping the learning around those the business strategy, the overall business strategy, and saying this is how we're actually gonna, gonna deliver it. And I would say that's the difference between that kind of head of director type role versus a manager role, which is you are still on the risk, you are effectively doing the tactical, you're, you're delivering and you are executing on a strategy and a plan that's already been formed. Now, you can still shape the way in which those things are delivered at a manager level, but you don't really have the same level of influence over the, the overarching strategy of where the business is going. And I think it's there aren't many businesses that have, at least in my experience, learning as a role at that level, at the seat, at that table, to be able to say, do you know what? We actually need to think about the end user in this experience, or we need to think about... Um, how do we want to achieve that a meaningful outcome without it just being a metric on a scoreboard? There are other things that we need to consider. That, for me, is where the difference really, really lies. And I feel that as times that's taken a lot of time to feel comfortable at that that level, and also build the credibility that you need because it's it's not a traditional function that sits. I don't think at that level it, that, that sits within an organization. For me, it's very much a an order-taking function, at least it has been in the past. Mm. And therefore, the credibility that you have at some of those more senior conversations hasn't really existed. Mm. The, the One of the big differences for me, uh, I mean, leadership, I think, uh, um, is something that in learning and development we need to, to get to grips with for all the reasons that I mentioned at the uh, at the the beginning the you know wait waiting for for the perfect conditions in order to modernize uh, rather than 
developing our leadership to show that we can talk outcomes and more predictably and reliably um, measure ourselves against achieving desired outcomes rather than delivering what the business expects, which is a suite of programs and courses. And of course, the difference between the two, I mean, is, is the difference between opening a, a dried packet of, I don't know, risotto or, or, or something and adding water and then cooking something from scratch. I mean, it's, it's, it's a completely different um, uh, outcome. But for me, um, there is this, this, the reporting line, I think, can be understated because um, I use the word exposure a lot because when you report into the CEO and, uh, and uh, you know, as I did, I reported into the, uh, the, the VP of, uh, of HR, but also to, you know, the, the, the president of, uh, of the European operation and, and their direct reports, you are exposed to conversations that you wouldn't have done before. And, you know, you're invited in as change is being planned or you know <laughs> sometimes as the change has happened the shit's hit the fan and now we need now we, we need to to do a, a clear up job almost like mr wolf from uh, uh, from pulp, pulp fiction um but with that exposure to those conversations also comes the exposure for when things go wrong or when your neck is on the block if, you know if i relate my roles as a lnd manager i either reported into the most senior L&D person, or at, uh, at Disney, I reported into uh, the HR um, uh, director, and you are covered. They've got your back. I mean, it's going to be a pretty bad director to shove you out front and not take some of the flack or, or provide you with enough comfort for you to explore and, and, and expand, but, but realise you've been covered. But that step up, when you have that exposure to senior, that, you know, I, can, I, I liken it to standing on the top of a mountain, you can be in awe of the view, but you really do hope that a big gust of wind doesn't come at the same time. <laughs> I wonder if that's something you've experienced or, or you know, and, and, and how, and if you have, and to, and to what extent, and how that, that um, affects your practice. Yeah, I, I, do, I do experience it. I think it's interesting in the sense that what the conversation enables from my point of view is where the ownership is for the delivery or the result or the outcome. Because there's a difference between what we create is work to support delivering organizational outcomes in terms of whatever the learning design that we choose to be. So we actually take responsibility for the solution, but the actual performance outcome that's being, that's being put out there is, is owned by the function that is supporting. So for example, if we are, you know, delivering on a, a particular training for store ops or a, or a particular outcome they're trying to push, the the owner still sits with with them. But if it weren't, if I weren't in the room to help people understand the roles that they play, then I think there's more pressure on an L and D manager to 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 deliver and be accountable for the outcome of that learning intervention in whatever form it takes. Because there hasn't been the opportunity to be able to course correct people and say, do you know what? This outcome is what you want. This is potentially how we can get there. Here's some potential options. You've collaborated on what the outcome might be. So everyone's invested even before you head down to the actual designing of the solution. So I think yeah. that's where the big difference sits in is that, I'm happy to take ownership and accountability for what actually sits within my boathouse, 
but I'm not going to take ownership and accountability for something that should be owned by someone else. So yeah. that's the power of, of being at that table. And there isn't, I don't have HR, but interestingly, HR is my peer. They're not my, I don't line into them. So we're actually separate mm-hmm. functions in our organization, which is an interesting dynamic. It works really well. Yeah. Um, but still, Steve and I are kind of the, the steerers of the, the learning ship um, within the business at the moment. And that's, that's cool. It's exciting, but it, I can only imagine what it would be if I weren't in that position. I was just on the receiving end of just deliver. Can you just deliver this? Just deliver this. Don't ask any questions. Mm. We just need to deliver it. So I think that's the exciting bit about being there, which I love. Uh, but I, I think that also comes down to type, you know, you, how you carry yourself. And I'm, I, I'm pretty strong I guess in in making sure that people understand where where the remit is and you know who owns what and why and how and when. Hmm. And so so do you have a set of um, say principles or or um, uh, something else that guides you in your approach? You said you're pretty strong there, but I'm, I'm sure that comes with both uh, confidence, uh, experience, and add in there like a tried and trusted method. By the way, by the sounds of it it's the way you carry yourself, but also the types of conversations that you steer your stakeholders towards. Is, is that something that, uh, that, that, that you also attribute to your success? Yeah, it, it is. It's grounded a lot in uh, lots of things that I read and lots of, you know, even I think Nigel, who came on to talk about performance consulting as an example, mm. I use a lot of that, um, uh, Neil's work on, on the 5DI model and I use elements of that to kind of help frame those conversations and guide people through where, where we need to, needs to be. Mm. But also I think it's yeah, in the experience that there's the framework bit and then there's the experience bit and the stories that you can tell that you bring to the table to help people understand in their world, why is this going to make a difference? Yeah, And I think that's, I mean, I'm not an L&D through and through in the sense that you know, I didn't start in L and D. My career started in retail operations, so mm. that adds a heap of credibility in the room. It, it really does. And as you can talk the language of the people that are sat in front of you, and that only comes with time. Sharing an example which is real for them, then it means that they're able to that relatability means that they're able to understand why taking people on the mm. journey in order to achieve the outcome that, that you, that you want to get. And that persuasiveness is, is something that, yeah, it, it comes from who you are, but it's also drawn from the experience and it's what you read. But I, I, I'm not necessarily religious in the sense of using one framework all the time, because mm-hmm. I think that there are certain times and places and it, it, it depends on the audience and it depends on the business. So what I do in this business is quite different to what I did in my previous business because of the maturity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, also how you have to be agile and smart in your own brain around how you actually bring these things to life. What works for one, you know, one man's breakfast, another man's dinner kind of idea. And um, what you've just described, so performance consulting uh, and Nigel Harrison, you know, that, you know, that is a, a set of uh, questions and uh, in order to guide a conversation around uh, how the work is done, the results that are gained, and the difference between what's happening now and where it needs to be, it's grounded in the work it's, uh, itself, so the performance and the outcome of that. And it requires you to work with and for the client on a desired outcome. As you said before, it's that partnership. It's not, 
it's very different from the traditional approach in which we'd see you'd gather a needs analysis, you'd deliver a program, and then you tell the line managers, hey, you need to support the learning. You know, it's not that. It's not that, you know, that again, that's chalk and cheese. It's very much around the way the work is done and the results. And then you mentioned the 5DI model, Nick Shackleton-Jones's um, 5DI model, which the first element of that is define. It's so important, going back to something you said earlier, about solving actual problems and not, um, distorting a performance problem again, again busting the lingo performance just means the way the work is done in order to get the, uh, the expected and rewarded uh, outcomes but uh, understanding what it is that isn't working in the context of the work in order to move forward and you have to do that a lot of the time Nick advocates as, as, as does uh, uh, do many folks that I speak to on here about dev data and evidence-based practice uh, Tracy says it brilliantly in the, in the conversation I had with her a couple of years ago. If the stakeholder can't bring data to the table to say there's a problem, it's really likely there's not actually a problem. So as the L&D leader, you determine, does the weighting of your stakeholder require that you do something, even though you largely know that it's gonna make no difference, or can you actually explore data with them to get to the root of the actual problem? And then the evidence element is working with the people that you're seeking to influence to understand what they're trying to do and what they're not able to do effectively and efficiently. And a great deal of the time, there's no training involved whatsoever because you, it's about guidance and support when and where it's required or sometimes just getting people together to chat about developing a better way of working. But when we start making assumptions around what we think is, uh, is required, oh, that sounds like a time management issue. And so we wheel out the time management course that we've run in a previous uh, organization. That's when we determine that we are gonna make very little difference in the uh, in the long run. Does any of that does any of that resonate? Yeah, totally. Because in, in the same way as you would contextualize any experience you're providing for an individual or a team, there's the element of I see it in my world at the moment of contextualizing my experience to be able to meet the need of my stakeholders. And mm. I think that my the function that I head up is a support function for everyone else within the business. Now, that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that it's not a true partnership. And I think that there is a, a thing there around where does the power bit sit? And, and mm. I, I, the, my view on that is, you know, you're a consulting partner to, to help someone understand, well, what is it they're actually trying to get after to enable us as potentially the experts, if you like, to be able to provide the right solution to be able to understand that, that problem. And the, the one, the example I always use is with, even in the business now, is that a lot of the requests I get will be from another head of, and I ask, well, how many levels are you removed from the person who's actually experiencing the problem you're talking to me about? Hmm. And we actually draw it out. So we'll go, right, so actually you're four or five levels removed. So there's five different versions of that particular problem. Hmm. How do we know that we're actually getting to, is it your problem? Is it the one level down you're hearing it from your direct report? Or have we actually uncovered the actual issue that's going on at mm. what you think is the root cause or where, you, where you, you want to fix that issue? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is in, even in this business, those are questions that haven't been asked before. So yeah. when you're asking people for real data, that, that, that there's some, sometimes you'll get, well, not implicit, not explicitly, but why are you asking? Yeah. And so there is an element of, I love the models. I love it. It does help you understand 
you know, and frame the conversation. But you've also got to be respectful for where people are at on their own journey and what freedoms they've been given. Because if you just go in and ask a whole load of questions, human tendency is to be suspicious more so than you are necessarily open-minded. So there's an element of helping them understand first. So I'm a little bit, when you bring in models, you know, it's like witchcraft, isn't it? People, ooh, what does that mean? What does that mean? Why are you doing this? So that's a bit, for me, foundational before you use any of this stuff. Build the relationships first. Get to know the people. What is it that makes them tick? That helps you then with the types of questions and which model you might want to use. So that's what I mean when I say, oh, I've done a lot of reading or I take bits from this model and bits from that model. It's more because it's situationally contextually applied to whom it is I'm speaking to at that, that given time. Now, Paul, um, I'm going to call out here that there is... Um, there's quite an absence in your responses of uh, L and D BS. There's not there aren't a lot of buzzwords that uh, that you're you're throwing at me here. I might just pull out learning organisation as the one, and I wonder whether that's because you come from an operational background, and so you'd rather speak the language of the uh, 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 of the business rather than L and D. But maybe this is a good point at which uh, which I should ask you as an outsider coming into the profession and then leading a function and representing uh, L and D. Um, is there anything about our profession that grinds your gears that you wish that we just get over and move on from so that we can become more effective, as you say, business partners uh, and uh, and achieve what we're in organisations to, to do? I'd say it's protectionism. And what I mean by that is I think that there is a genuine fear. What will we do if we are not providing training or meeting the need when people ask us a question? Mm. So, and I think unless you've, it, it, and it's easy to be really insular when, if that's the only area that you worked in, and I didn't really appreciate that until I moved out of operations into a learning function. Mm. So for me, it's that. And I, and I do see it. I sit on a couple of committees of learning development professionals and and sometimes you, you can be there and you go I, I, I feel for people who genuinely don't know potentially how to get out of the rut because I don't think it's a desire for people to not want to do things differently there is an element of I don't know how or what that means and so I, I try not to be judgmental around the fact that you know some L&D professionals are in a bit of a rut is that because they've not been led in the way that they need to be led or it's so the view on training is so institutionalized it's just easier to kind of uh, to lead it through and i think that if people just open their mind up to the fact that actually we are if you just broaden your commerciality around the broader business it can give you great opportunities to gain really great insights and actually then provide meaning and real value and then your sense of purpose and validation will come anyway it's just mm. not thinking that what you do is is right, and that's the only thing that, that we can that, that we can do. Doing everything the same was it the definition of insanity? That's right. <laughs> uh, so, so continuing on that on that theme, then, Paul. Um, look, in my experience, it seems that L and D professionals are harder to convince to modernise their practice. Uh, and sell a different vision of uh, learning development than employees and stakeholders. Employees love stuff that works. Employees love stuff that that helps them with what they're trying to do uh, in order to either be better and faster at their job or improve their prospects. They get it. 
Uh, stakeholders can be uh, convinced easily when you talk about outcomes, and especially if you're talking about actual data. And although they may have sold training to their teams and you're not gonna win every battle there, more often than not, stakeholders come with you. But in encouraging learning and development professionals to think about the, the value that they offer in a different way and then do something different and develop a different skill set for which perhaps training delivery and facilitation of any kind falls down the pecking order of, of, of what, what, what they'll be doing with the majority of their time um, is harder. So I wonder how you've done this with, with your team members because you've already said you engage in business conversations about business solutions and that may not be training. Now, as people rise up through the ranks in learning and development, the key skill set that they develop is often facilitation and training design and delivery. So I wonder how, you, in your experience, you, you brought others in our profession with you. Uh, so both recent roles, um, I've taken the team through a book club using Jeff Sutherland's book, Scrum, yeah. in order to modernize our own internal way of working. And I do it for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm really passionate about that way of working. Mm -hmm. Two, because it means that we can operate more efficiently and more quickly as a team to be able to provide real value to the business. And three, it's a style of learning which is often overlooked. So I, the actual book club element of taking people on, we're implementing a change within the team. Let's learn about the theory of it and apply it as we go. When we finish that, we'd, I then revisit back and going, well, how did we actually, what did we learn? How did we learn? What did we do? Did I sit everyone in a classroom? No. And actually I'd do it with the team through the way that we work which is what we're asking them to deliver, mm. interestingly, for the business when we're providing solutions. I, I do it through practical ways of, mm. of doing it rather than enforcing a change down on the team. And the, the other thing is, 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 again, is ensuring that I'm gaining feedback from stakeholders around the work that we are delivering as a result of our changed way of working in both positive and constructive ways and keeping it more fluid so that people can actually see real value at the, at, at the point at which that value is being created. So it then becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy, if you like, of, oh, that's working, that's working, cool. Mm -hmm. So then they kind of feel and boost, boost their confidence. And I think it's being cognizant as well that some of these individuals, they've been ingrained in their, their style of working for such a long time that actually they just need a little bit of guidance and counsel and support. And remembering that as a leader, a leader of a team is that you can't just say, this is the new way of working and away you go. You can't abdicate your responsibility to provide them that coaching and supporting. So in essence, I'm coaching and supporting my direct reports as well as my peer group, as well as my boss to understand what this future view looks like. And in no, there's been not a single instance where we've used the book club with Jeff Sutherland's book and then not continued that way of working. Mm. And why? Because we've taken people on a journey and they're doing it through the way they're working. They're seeing tangible results as they move through. That, that for me, is, 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 is how I've, I've done it. Uh, and, yeah, it's been, it's, been an, it's been an awesome journey to see them open their eyes to something different, um, and also continue to provide real value to the business at the same time. I mean, that's just magic if you can get that to work. And and when you um, 
you encourage them to read Scrum. Um, what is it because you're you're trying to instill in them the 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 skills, the way of working, the reframe of the value uh, that uh, that the function can offer to uh, to the organisation. What's what's kind of your intention, and, and what's the what's the the consequence, which is then the way you work. The intention was, and still is, to help people understand that there's a different the way that you. It, the underlying thing is. Just because we do something the way we do it doesn't mean that it's right. So let's have a look at something mm. different. So it's having a change and open mindset. Now, that might mean that after we've done the book club, they say, no, no, thanks. I don't want to do that. Let's go back to doing this. And that's cool. But at least they've attempted mm. something different. So it's all of the things that you describe in the sense that it is around the value creation. It is around the minimum viable product. It is around all of those things in terms of the way of working and what the value that it creates but it's also the actual act of doing the book club in itself, bringing people to share ideas, to reduce hierarchy and actually just create a, a sense of team. In, in, and I started this during the pandemic. So when, when we, all of us were working remotely and it just created also this other sub uh, effect of a closer working team. Um, so it had, there were multiple reasons. It wasn't just as simple as, okay, I really like the idea of Scrum, let's implement it. There were some, there were some subversive elements to it, of which is, is proven. And even today, I was looking at the, what work someone had achieved today, and they were just pumping out three or four items today mm. with no effort, really, um, and adding real value in the moment. I mean, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's their development, Paul. If I can uh, uh, ask you, uh, and if you wouldn't mind telling us, what you're focusing your development on at this stage in your career. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. I, For me, at the moment, this is about how do we bring whole self to work? And I think what COVID has done is it's exposed, every, particularly for those of us who've had to work at home in roles that required us to do that is exposed our whole selves to the workplace because you've effectively you've invited people at home. So I've been really passionate and interested about what does that new world of work look like? What does that mean for individuals? What does it mean for teams? What does it mean from a hybrid working perspective and how do we, what, what's, what, what, would, what would that future be? And it's still in a really messy phase in my head. So I don't know what that would actually look like, but that I'm doing a lot of reading really in, in, in that place, because I think it does inform the way that we provide support to the business as a learning function, mm. but also the potential solutions that we provide as well. Um, and I, interestingly, I have uh, a, well, I find it interesting, a, <laughs> uh, a contact of the global head of learning at Microsoft, uh, who I was speaking to during the pandemic. And she really summed this up, Karen Coker and Amos, and she really summed this up for me. She said, suddenly, when we all went to work from home, Paul, in her amazing American accent, which I won't try, <laughs> she said, suddenly we were asked, we were the experts of virtual learning. Mm. And we weren't. And I thought, oh, yeah, because actually people think you're going to move learning onto a 
Zoom call or a Teams call and suddenly yeah. it's the same experience just being on PowerPoint. So I think that there's so many things that COVID has done around the world of work. There's the bit around what does that mean for business, but then what does it mean around how do we support business to get there? Mm-hmm. So my development really is focused around learning around that stuff and what does that mean in that new world? Don't know yet. Exciting times yeah. though in that regard to learn. Yeah, I th- yeah, I completely agree, and uh, things will continue to uh, to evolve, not just from a um, uh, adapting our work practices perspective, but from from an expectations um, uh, perspective as well. Uh, now, Paul, as we we look to wrap up, um, as an L and D leader and potential hiring manager, what advice would you give L and D professionals today who are just starting out, or perhaps in the first yeah, three or four years of uh, of, of their career with us? Don't underestimate the power of networks. Mm. I would say that getting yourself out of your insular role of within a business and, and actually exploring what goes on outside of your world is incredibly important. What I've been made redundant two, three times, yeah, three times in the past three years. And if it weren't for um, the network that I have now, I don't think I would have got through it in the way that I did um so for me the power of networks is is incredibly important and i know it can be really daunting but just having a conversation even with your line manager about this is something that i'm really interested in learning and asking them if they know someone they can connect you on suddenly you work, you make up this massive web of people who can provide you really great counsel you know and, and there's things that i'm always honest about with my team is that i may not be the expert on the topic that you want to know about so you have some have someone or let's work out how we find someone for you to be connected to because it isn't just about the topic it's also about the people and you never know when you're going to need them um Mm. and that then provides a level of commerciality as well over and above just the the l and d expertise uh yeah so that's networking for me yeah, solid advice. I think that uh, that being intentional in your networking as well, it's one thing to know a lot of people, but it's another one to map out where your where the strengths of your network are and where you really need to develop it. I've focused just as much uh, internally in business at, when I was at Disney uh, so that I really knew what was going on, that I, I developed a profile that I was the go-to guy when you know that when there were changes that uh, that needed to go on, and then you find your seat at the table. Is that your, yourself? Your, your seat at the table because people know who you are and the value that you bring. And then, of course, you know your your external L and D uh, network that provides uh, not just you know you mentioned there about the council, which is uh, which is a strong element, and that council also, you know has the the subdivisions of they're there when uh, when you need help. They're there to to inspire you. Uh, they're there to uh, to so you can role model. I mean, there's, there's until you're actually doing it, you don't realise how generous people are with their time. And if they see benefit in themselves, when I was uh, when I was making my way in L and D and networking with uh, people, perhaps one or two steps above, you know, you're seeing how they operate within their organisation. You don't get, you know, you're peering in through the window of their working lives. It helps you to to see what what it means to how they operate how they how they walk the walk there uh, as well as some of the things that they're saying so it's like um, it, culture know. isn't it it's not what it's some it's it's there's a power in what isn't being said it's just the mm. energy that someone brings to a space sometimes and, and i find that you just touched on a point which i always find really interesting is when i suggest to people networking they go why would anybody want to do that why would it as yeah. in give up their time 
And I say, tell you now, most people would be humbled and they would love to share their experience mm. because that's, there is an element, there's an altruism to it. And I think as humans, we're hardwired to tell stories and pass things on. And I think it's people, there are people who are genuinely busy and they, they, don't, they can't afford the time, but most people would love to be able to just share some of their experience. But in the same way as it's not, it is, it's also about who the person is and do you have a genuine connection with them? Yeah. Uh, because I've been like, I'm a bit of a runner and the amount of times that I've been to a physio and not got on with them because they're just not the right mix of person and you find the right person, suddenly their physio is amazing. So it is, there's a connection piece, which I think people also miss out on. And that's, people then think, oh, I don't have the time. And I think it's investing the time, being persevering with it, asking the question in the first and foremost, would you mind? And, 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 being, and you're right, being purposeful. What is it you actually want my time for? And being clear around what's your expectation and what you want to get out of it. So you're actually, you know, people don't, it's not just a broad range of topics, you know, be really specific. And that does help people mm. to... To, to, to narrow down the, the conversation. Wonderful. Um, final question, Paul. Um, I'm going to be a bit cruel here. Networking is a given. <laughs> what, <laughs> advice would you, what advice would you give to those who aspire to lead uh, L&D functions, perhaps if they're, uh, if they're a manager now or, or, or um, consider themselves uh, managing material very soon? What, what, what advice would you take, um, give them to get to where you are and lead a function? Oh, that's a tough question. The humility is really, really important. It becomes even more so as the further you go up, I think, mm. in the sense that you don't have all the answers and be be, be open-minded about that. Use, be ag- the other thing that I found really helpful is being agnostic to, to a- outcomes. And that, and that might be a simple thing to say, but um, there are many people as you get further up who've obviously drilled into a specialism and they're very tied to what they want a particular outcome to be. And sometimes you can have your view on what you think the right outcome is, but ultimately I think the phrase I use is the art of negotiation is getting a deal. It's not what you want. Yeah. And so be comfortable that the deal might be the best you're going to get. And I think the negotiation skills are something that you really need to think about how skilled am I as a negotiator the further you go up? Because you have to compromise and give. There's less of that as you're a manager because you're receiving a lot more direction. So I would say, yeah, those things. Yeah. And and if I can uh, just um, seek to summarize some of your earlier points on here as well, and of course you'll have the right to reply, um, uh, speak speak the language of the people that of your stakeholders so the people that you're seeking to influence and and help rather than the language of learning um and become comfortable in not not really dipping into your L&D toolkit anymore because if you're speaking their language it's highly unlikely that your solutions are going to be training or e-learning but be comfortable with the ambiguity and the hustle that's required to make actual performance and results difference rather than distort the performance need into a learning need and then give them what they think they need and make next to no difference. Would that be fair? I'd say that'd be fair. 
And also sometimes I go back to the other point though, which is you can come at it from being as open-minded and performance focused as you want, but ultimately the function owns the outcome. And if the yeah. function still wants something, sometimes to go back to that point around negotiating, the deal might mean you have to compromise on what you want, but you yeah. might get a little bit fuzzy around the edges and say, I'm just going to add this little bell and whistle over here because I think actually that's going to make a difference. And I'm going to show you, Mr. Person, Mrs. Person, that this actually could be a way of doing it. And then you go back with the evidence after. So I think it's also comfort in the fact that you might have to just go back old school sometimes when you're on a journey to bring people from old school to new school. Yeah. Paul, I think in a nutshell, that is leadership. That, you know, as you just described it there, you might give people what they ask for, but it's the it's what you what you show them and add in addition that you know, that you think is going to get the results that that then helps to get them further along. And when they then say to you, oh, why don't we do more of that stuff? You know, again, this goes back to your humility. You're not looking to be right. You're looking to capitalize on those leadership opportunities and even give, give them the opportunity to, come, like, to, to suggest what you'd already done and then step back and say, great suggestion, let's go with that. That is leadership because that's moving people from, from where they are um, and where they expected to be. Uh, to somewhere perhaps is that's better and where they didn't expect to be yeah totally then when you're at the leadership round table and they say oh we did this training in our function or whatever this was and this was such a really mm. great idea they don't mention you by name that's fine with me because that's we it. still achieve the right outcome that's it and what a wonderful <laughs> way to uh, to end this now uh paul always left me to say is thank you very much for being a guest on the learning and development podcast awesome thanks the step up into leadership roles can often be underestimated because it's hard to understand unless you're doing it. As you heard in this conversation, there are commonalities across organizations and there are ways in which we can prepare. Leadership is necessary when things need to change and need to be done differently, which is certainly true for L&D right now. Remember to check out the previous episodes in this series on starting out in L&D and becoming an L&D manager. If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. And goodbye for now. <laughs>